chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the aliens who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, imagine that. Joshua is reading all of the words. We're only going to do a little bit of Joshua today, but imagine reading all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Imagine reading all of that to the people of Israel. That's a long church service, isn't it? But Joshua went into the, uh, I said a couple of weeks ago, Joshua went into with the, the, the Bible of his day, all the books of the Bible as it was written at his time, handed to him by Moses. Now today we have all the books of the Bible and we kind of think of it as one book but Joshua would have received effectively five books and it would have been seen as the, the five books of the law and today we hear how Joshua reads that to the people and what we see in this little passage here is that he stands and he reads all the words of the law. He reads it all. He doesn't leave any of it out. All the words of the Word of God were important to him at the time. And, and the, the whole point of this passage here is that living out the Word of God and worshipping God brings the presence of God. So, living out the Word of God, worshipping God, brings the presence of God. And in a moment, I'll show how when they didn't do those two things, God withdraws His presence. And presence is considered the ultimate blessing. Yes, they're going into the Promised Land and that's a good thing, the land of milk and honey, but actually, the ultimate blessing is that they would have the presence of God. And so, this passage is coming to the idea that they're renewing the covenant and they're restoring right relationship with God so that God's presence would be with them again. And so, in some ways, I need to catch you up a little bit because you might be thinking, uh, why is 
God not being with them. We've, we heard last week that God led them into Jericho and helped them to conquer Jericho. So, what's happened between Jericho and now that they would have broken the covenant and they'd need to uh, have it restored? Last week, Peter actually shared with us about the battle for Jericho and how instead of actually waging a military campaign against the walls of Jericho, the Israelites were asked to march around the city of Jericho and then go to camp and go to bed. Then get up the next day, march around the city and then go to bed. March around the city, they did that. And then on the seventh day, they marched seven times and then they let out a cry of worship and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and they get the city of Jericho. And what happens in the chapter after this, the chapter before the one we've just read, is that we see that something goes wrong. Now, it's not uncommon at the time of this. Don't forget, this event is actually taking about 1,400 years before Jesus. So, it's taking place you know, three and a half thousand years ago and at that time, what was common to do is that actually when you're invading something, it was common that part of the wage that you would get was that you'd actually plunder the city, you'd look for valuable things and you would take the valuable things because they really didn't actually pay the soldiers like we would pay soldiers today. And so, it wasn't uncommon for soldiers to plunder the city. It was also common when you were retreating that you would actually drop some valuable things so that the, the, the army that was chasing you would actually pick up the valuable things rather than get you. And what we hear in uh, the chapter 7 is that the Israelites go up to a city to invade it, they fail at it and then they, as they're running away, about 36 of them are killed rather than the whole lot in battle. So, people would invade and if they were losing, they would withdraw and that's what would be happening in this time. But Jericho was a city that worshipped foreign gods and it was also a city that was in, it had worship that involved child sacrifice. And so, God said, when you invade Jericho, destroy everything that's devoted to this style of worship. Don't take any of it, don't take anything that is considered valuable. But one soldier sees something valuable he sees an ornate cloak that one of the priests that would lead this type of worship and it's covered in gold and silver and he covets it and he steals it and he takes it and then he lies about it. In one way, this soldier breaks, well, he clearly breaks three of the commandments. He covets something, he steals something and he lies about it. But because this cloak was devoted to worship of another God, he's also really kind of stretching the first commandment, which is to love the Lord your God above all other gods. He's kind of stretching that first covenant. He doesn't necessarily break it, but he's kind of stretching it because he's taking something devoted to worshipping another God. And so, one soldier has actually uh, committed at least breaking three, but stretching a fourth. And what that's done is, it's actually meant that God has withdrawn His presence because they haven't focused on following the Word of God, particularly the Ten Commandments that Moses had given them and they haven't worshipped God, God has withdrawn His presence. 
But that's what this passage is about. It's leading up to uh, understanding why they might need to renew the covenant, because the covenant had been broken. And what happens is that whilst this uh, person, this soldier called Akan, which is mentioned in chapter 7, is the soldier that stole these items, it's actually brought a curse on the whole of the Israelites. And what this does is it actually means that these things that have been devoted to evil things have infiltrated the camp. Now, we might sort of look at this story and think, well, from a Christian point of view, why do we need to worry about this? Isn't this just kind of old-fashioned ideology? Isn't this old-fashioned thinking? Why do we need to worry about things? Haven't we moved beyond that? And in some ways, you might be correct. Because remember, in uh, the day of Jesus, there were many things that you couldn't consume as a Jew because they were considered to be uh, uh, tarnished. So you couldn't eat pork, you couldn't eat some other foods, you couldn't mix certain foods, you couldn't wear certain things. And Jesus came to liberate people from those rules and regulations. And Jesus come to say that it's, it's what comes from within us, not what we put into us, that makes all the difference. And James talks about the most evil thing that you can do is actually your tongue because of it's, it's your speech that comes out of you that's evil, not what you put in. And Paul, even uh, at times, when he was trying to reach the Gentiles, he ate things that the Jews weren't allowed to eat and he defended that action. So we might think, why do we worry about it? Is this just an Old Testament thing and we live in the New Testament so we don't have to worry about it? But in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, be careful, however, that when you exercise your right, that it doesn't become a stumbling block to those who are weaker. For if someone in weak conscience sees you eating foods that are uh, sacrificed to idols in the temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat whatever is sacrificed to idols? The idea is that when something is devoted to something other than God, we really shouldn't have anything to do with that. Paul is warning us that even though Jesus sits on the throne and sits over all things, we still need to be careful about those things that are devoted to things other than Jesus. And that's all those things that lead us away from God. Anything that would break our relationship with God we need to be careful of. Here's a real practical example. In in our day, and you don't even have to be a Christian to do that, even though the 12-step program for alcoholics comes from a Christian basis, if someone has an alcohol problem, the first thing they need to do is actually acknowledge that there is a problem. To say, well, everybody else is drinking and you can go into a pub anywhere and therefore alcohol is not a problem actually is part of the problem that leads to their alcohol addiction. And then when they want to break that alcohol addiction, the second thing they have to do is actually remove alcohol from their presence because it's a temptation for them that leads them into uh, their addiction. Now, eventually, if some people do the 12-step program and recover from their alcoholic addiction, 
if you've ever spoken to somebody, they actually choose not to drink for the rest of their life. They sometimes do get into a place where they're so comfortable with their behaviour and their relationship with alcohol that they don't drink and they can go to a place like a, a dinner party where other people drink but you know that there are some people in that early stage of recovery from alcohol addiction that they can't even go to a dinner party where people are drinking because of this uh, impact on them. I think that's a real practical example of how we need to be careful in our day with those things that lead us astray from God. Things that we might say, well, alcohol is not a problem for me, but I wonder what is the problem for you? I wonder what is the thing that distracts you from God? It might be instead of getting up and reading your Bible in the morning, you get out your phone and, and, and just flick through Instagram and an hour's gone and, and, and you've, you've wasted an hour on Instagram. And maybe that might be something where, is Instagram really that evil? No. But you should start thinking about what are the things that distract you from your relationship with God. Now, this soldier had to pay a fairly hefty price. He had to uh, be put to death because of his actions. In our world today, that seems like an unrealistic thing. And I suppose in some ways, particularly for those of us who are Christian, it seems unrealistic, the death penalty, because we live in the grace of Jesus. Jesus died in our place so that we don't have to pay the ultimate sacrifice of death. But this is before Jesus, and in some ways, actually, the soldier, Achan, he has to pay the ultimate sacrifice so that the rest of the nation can be restored into right relationship with God. But in case we think that there's some, uh, it's, that Achan has to bear some uh, over-heavy burden, it's also the military leaders that are problematic in this time. The military leaders actually decide that they want to take a city and after their, their win in Jericho, they actually think, well, we, we can take this city. We've taken Jericho, not acknowledging that it was actually God that delivered Jericho into their hands, and they think they can take this city. And so they go up, but they say, look, don't send all the soldiers up there, they'll get tired. How about we send 3,000 soldiers up there instead? And they go up there with 3,000 soldiers and without the presence of God, and they're defeated. And the response of Joshua is despair. There's this worrying phrase in Joshua 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 7, where Joshua says, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did we ever bring your people across the Jordan and deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Joshua says a very similar thing to what the Israelites said in Moses' time, where they said, oh, if only you'd never brought us out of Egypt, we wouldn't have been uh, in despair. So quickly, people can fall into despair. Where is the bold Joshua that takes charge of the Israelites and takes them into the promised land? Where is the leadership that was going to help them get into the promised land. I don't know whether 
you've ever tried to do something in your own strength rather than trusting in God. Perhaps you haven't. Perhaps you just live your life where you're trusting God and, and, and you feel comfortable with that. But I think many of us have tried to do things in our own effort. And we mightn't really identify with a, a, a military battle three and a half thousand years ago. But I think Joshua chapter 7 and 8 are a great example to us that people are people, whether it's three and a half thousand years ago or 2023. That sometimes we try to do things in our own effort rather than trusting in God. Perhaps you've tried to carve out your own career, grinding away at your career, pursuing the things that you want to, rather than handing your career over to God and saying, God, I want to serve where you want me to serve. And yesterday at our breakfast, Chris Waghorn shared how his first 40 years of life was all about doing what he wanted to do. And his last nine years have been about serving God where God wants him to serve. And in actual fact, his career is much better in these last nine years than they ever were in the first 40 years. Perhaps you've tried to make your own decisions and you've thought you know better than anybody else or you know better than God. Maybe you've cried out to God for some prayer requests and God hasn't seen to deliver on it, so you take actions into your own hands and you make decisions for yourself. Perhaps you've tried to live the life that you want rather than rely on the will of God. I know I've done that. I mean, sometimes as a priest, I, I kind of, I, I remember that Jesus said, I will build my church. And Jesus actually said, Jesus will build his church. But sometimes I try to hurry Jesus along a little bit and kind of say, come on, Jesus, let's get this going. Let's get this moving. Let's get this going. And I try to do it in my own effort. And, and leading up to Alpha, that was a, a great reminder to me that I can't do it in my own effort. I just thought if we just organize Alpha and we, we put it on, it'll, it'll all kind of work and we'll, we'll be successful at it and it'll be great. But three weeks before Alpha started, the team sat around and we were like, so who's coming to Alpha? And we, we looked at the list, the list was empty. And I caught myself thinking I'd tried to do this in my own effort rather than trusting in God. And three weeks before Alpha, we said, God, if you want people to do Alpha, you have to bring them along. And we have a whole lot of people doing Alpha now. And we've had some really interesting experiences of people doing Alpha people sitting in our front row today, people who I didn't know in my head were coming to Alpha, but God knew that they were coming. Sometimes we try to grind it out in our own effort. And don't just dismiss this book of Joshua because it happened three and a half thousand years ago. We can probably see Joshua in ourselves. When things don't go right, we despair rather than turn to trust in God. I know I've done that. And so, what happened was that when they removed the devoted things to these false gods, and when they realised that trying to do the military strategy in their own efforts wasn't going to work, 
they decided that they would return to God. And the passage that we just read here is their version of having a worship session. We don't build an altar of uncut stones, but that's what they did in their day. That's their defining moment of saying, God, we tried to do it in our own effort, we failed, and so we're going to return to you and we're going to do it in our own effort. And we're going to do it in relationship with you. The nation repents, Joshua repents, the military leaders repent, and they turn to God. And what they remind themselves of is everything that Moses had commanded them to, to follow. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses actually lists out a whole series of blessings if they follow God and a whole list of curses if they don't follow God. And when Moses hands them the book of Deuteronomy, at that point it's a theory because they didn't know that it was going to become a reality for them. By the time we get to the end of Joshua 8, this theory that had been handed to them had become a reality. They knew what it was like to have the blessing of God's presence. They also knew the curses that went with not having God's presence with them. These blessings and curses had become a lived reality for them. In our day, I think the good news of Jesus is a little bit easier than what Joshua had to go through. Because I think Jesus on the cross offers us grace. So rather than us having to put on sackcloth and ashes and repent, we just have to look at Jesus on the cross and realise that God's Son has paid the price for us and therefore we can be in right relationship when we return. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have someone who accompanies us as we go about our life. We don't have to do it in our own effort anymore. The Holy Spirit fuels us as we go out into the world and the presence of God goes with us as the ultimate sign of blessing. So as I come to the end of this, I think there's an encouragement for us as a church. This passage reminds us that when the people of God repent and return to the Word of God and to the worship of God, then the presence of God will be with them. I don't have all the time to talk about all the problems of the church over the last 40 years and all the things that we've done wrong as a church universal. The most immediate thing we could think of is about the, the impact that institutional sexual abuse has had on the church and the damage that that has caused. I think the reminder to us is that when we return to the Word of God and we return to the worship of God, then God will bless us with His presence. The church needs to hear the warning of Joshua, the book of Joshua, and not trust in our own understanding but understand that the Word of God that we've received, the whole book of the Bible, is wisdom for us. And as we return to the worship of God and the Word of God, then we too will be a church blessed with His presence. Let me pray for us.
Gracious God, we praise and thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, while there's many parts of Scripture that might be challenging for us to read, we thank you that we can look at the cross and know that through the grace of Jesus, we're restored into right relationship with you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, guiding us as we go about our day, going about our career, going about building our relationships in our family and in our community. We pray that you would bless us, guide us and protect us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.